Um, let me just begin by saying thank you uh, for engaging with this study. Uh, this book was a, a labor of, of love and also of, of um, kind of self-emptying, emptying all of the expectations that I have to show that I know so much or that I have to speak a certain language uh, and instead trying to really go from the heart uh, because that is where a lot of our conversations get stuck in the sense that we're really good at learning new things and speaking new languages sometimes, but, but getting to the language of the heart and being able to speak with one another about difficult issues uh, is, is something that, that I've been trying to, to work on with the communities that I've been working with. So you read the first um, three chapters or so of, of the book. Uh, I'd love to hear first any questions or comments or, or pushback that you have so far in what you've read. I'll ask about the ratio, the chapter three, uh, racial identity theory. You had mentioned somewhere earlier that that was from someone. Uh, or is that from you, the, the stages? Uh, no, those stages are from um, the racial identity development theory of Beverly Daniel Tatum and Janet Helms. Janet Helms uh, is at uh, Boston College, and Beverly Daniel Tatum is the former president of Spelman College. And um, Beverly Daniel Tatum's uh, book that is really accessible uh, is called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race. Um, so her book kind of goes through racial identity development theory um, in a really helpful way. And before I read that book, I had read an article by her that talked about how she used it in the classroom with her, her college-age students. So she, at the time, was teaching uh, college courses on the psychology of race, and she let people know ahead of time these stages of racial identity development uh, and the different kind of emotional reactions all of them may have to having these conversations. And she tracked along with them with uh, journals that they had to turn in throughout the semester, and she noticed that students would be able to, to notice here's when I want to withdraw from the conversation, but I know that's a natural part of the process, so I'm going to stay engaged. And so she was able to see how talking about these, uh, you know, these developmental stages um, was a way of letting people know that the different emotions that you're going through are shared. It's not your experience alone. Uh, and that the, the end goal isn't just you feeling bad or you feeling guilty. You know, we need to kind of keep working through this so that we can develop into a deeper community. Um, so uh, I really recommend her work to you. Uh, her, her, her book has been, um, it was originally published in the 90s, but it's come out with a more recent edition. Uh, so I really recommend that to you. Carolyn, I, I know most people here know at least a little bit about your, your background and your interests and uh, you know, your PhD dissertation. Uh, was on whiteness and, and preaching, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what would you say, like, if you could just kind of sum up your, your background a little bit for people here that might not know too much about you, how did you become interested in uh, studying, uh, you know, racism in a more formal way in your, your academic work, and then kind of into what you do now and what I feel like you've done really well with this book is, is bringing that experience to... Uh, just a broader audience of people. 
Yeah, sure. So I share a little bit about this in the book about how um, I was called to ministry when I was about 15, but I'd been growing up in predominantly white neighborhoods uh, and churches and um, all through my growing up, even though I was surrounded by Christian community, people who you know wanted to do good in the world, um, there was still this silence about the ongoing impact of racism on our brothers and sisters, also in the community in which we lived. Um, and so when I got to seminary after college uh, and first was kind of had my eyes open. I was reading Dolores Williams at the time, and I was just shocked that I had gone through so much education in uh, in a Christian setting and Christian formation and hadn't yet been able to recognize the ongoing reality of, of racism. And one of the things that I think as people of faith um, we, we tend to do is we we want to look at the pain of the world and try to do what we can to, to address it. And um, for me as a white person, it felt so painful to talk about this. And I didn't know how to talk about it with the white communities that I had come out of and that I might serve in, in future uh, contexts. So at first it was just a question that kept uh, coming up. How do I, how do I talk about this? How do I bring this back? And uh, I, I worked for a year on the U.S.-Mexico border as a, a, a chaplain in Yuma, Arizona. And, um, you know, again, seeing race play out in so many different ways in that environment uh, and the impact of our nation's past history with Native Americans uh, and the, the two Native American tribes that are there and the literally deadly impact of, of people um, crossing the border and being chased by ICE agents. Uh, I mean, all of that was just really, really um, present during that time. And then I served a church uh, in, in San Antonio, which is where I grew up. Uh, and so it was home territory. And uh, during that time, I was kind of getting my uh, uh, kind of feet wet in ministry, you know, experiencing what it's like to be a pastor, being an ordained. Um, but still that question just kept coming up. How do I, how do I talk about racism when we as a church are reaching out to the northeast side of San Antonio and not reaching just across the street to the neighborhood that's becoming more predominantly black and Hispanic. What what's going on and how do we how do we change? Um, and a lot of what I heard at the time was, well, we we don't think they would be interested in what we have to offer. You know, there's there's these justifications that people have for saying we we think people who look like us will have the most in common with us and be interested. So, I, again, I didn't know how to really go into those conversations. So, forward, I, I went to um, Princeton Seminary where I did, uh, I worked for three years as Associate Director of Admissions. So, I was in administration. And you're sitting around the admissions table. And again, you're talking about diversity. You're talking about wanting to increase diversity on campus of the seminary. And yet, what is the atmosphere of the seminary? Uh, is it hospitable to people who come from different backgrounds? Once we bring people here, are we being effective in helping them feel welcomed and every bit a part of the community? Um, so again, these questions uh, came up. And that's when I found that article by Beverly Daniel Tatum about the impact of racial identity development on students in the classroom. And for me, it was kind of this light bulb like, oh, Shame and guilt don't have to be the end result of this. Like there's still more processing that we can go through and find some other end points, some other sense of community. 
And uh, so I started doing more research. Then I did a, a THM while I was working at Princeton Seminary. And then I just, I had to do a PhD. It wasn't because I knew I needed to be a seminary teacher. It was just this question needed to be answered in a, in a more uh, kind of systematic way for me. So uh, I went to Emory University where I was able to take classes from uh, across disciplines uh, in linguistic anthropology, uh, found out about a, a woman named Jane Hill, uh, who wrote a book called uh, The Everyday Language of White Supremacy. She talks about mock Spanish and the ways that mock Spanish uh, has a way of passing on kind of racist ideas. You know, when people say manana, manana, as a way of saying, conveying a whole lot of information about uh, assumptions of, of persons who are Spanish speaking being putting things off. Um, so that's just one example. But so a lot of great resources. And I don't need to talk, tell you all the great resources that uh, that I studied during that time, but the one thing that kind of brought everything together for me as I'm trying to kind of unpack what I saw was the, the problem um, was this, this threefold process of recognition, uh, which was the challenge of recognizing racism, just how challenging that is uh, for us to really understand, for us to know what it looks like, what it feels like. Um, second, that, that, self piece, that identity piece, recognizing ourselves as racialized, recognizing ourselves to this lens of racial identity development. What does that mean? How do we address the emotions that, that come with this? And then the third piece was, how do we recognize a response? How do we respond in light of what we're learning? Uh, and so that, that third piece, uh, and, and this is um, from a, a book that I was reading by Paul Ricoeur on uh, the course of recognition. And at the end, he talks about this gift exchange, this recognition as gratitude. And it was a real eye-opening experience for me to think, wow, what if we conceived of these hard conversations as a gift exchange? which means even if I know it's going to be hard for me to enter into this space, even if I know that I'm nervous and I'm worried I'm going to say the wrong thing, that, that if I anticipate gratitude, if I anticipate I'm going to feel grateful at the other side of this, I'm much more empowered to, to attend, to show up, to be engaged. And likewise to think that you yourself are bringing a gift that you have a gift to bring into this conversation. Um, as, as a white person, you know, there's, there was a lot that I felt um, I, I, that I just shouldn't be part of. These conversations, I, as someone who doesn't experience racial discrimination, then that's not my place to talk about this as someone who doesn't know it from the inside. Um, but hearing again and again from people of color who say, we are tired of being the ones to educate white people. And two, we don't always know how to talk about it. You know, we, nobody trains us how to, how to talk about this either. Um, and so don't expect us to educate everyone else. So realizing that this is a skill set. This is a skill set. Talking about these difficult uh, subjects uh, and um, the fact that it, it's, it's always in flux. What we talk about is race and racism. It can it keeps popping up and rearing its head in new forms. And we have to constantly be 
kind of reevaluating how we how we talk about it um, so that that people can really see what's what's going on. Um, so understanding that this is a skill set that needs to be taught and learned again and again, just like keeping up with uh, a hobby that you have or, you know, a- another skill set that you have, you got to keep working at it. And uh, what I hope in my work to do is to train that back part of your brain, that, that central part, that amygdala that goes off with the, the fight or flight response uh, when you're afraid or when you feel uh, threatened, uh, when, when you feel, you know, a sense of, of nervousness. I'm, I'm hoping that in our conversations that we can train that amygdala to just tone it down just a little bit, just to not have that same reactivity, to embody a way to sit with one another in our embodied experiences, to sit with our feelings, to receive the feelings that others have, uh, and to be able to stay in that space long enough to engage in relationship. Um, so those are some of the goals, some of the kind of roundabout journey that, I, that I've taken. I'm sorry, it's a little bit late, so my, I, I may be a little more scattered in my speech than I say. <laughs> yeah, great question. Is there another question? I, Carolyn, I told them to bring questions. So. <laughs> uh, just so that I don't know. Right. We actually yeah. wrote questions. The first, before we even started, or when we started with the yeah. intro, we wrote questions, anxieties, and things we were hoping uh, to get out of it. And I actually have a question that somebody else wrote um, that stuck with me. But one of the questions somebody raised in the first week was, is there anything in our church structures that we need to address in order to kind of like, you know, be anti-racist, you know, to kind of, um, and have you learned anything from your work and engagement with congregations through this book that you see our churches need to work on? That is such a great question. And it's really a deep, uh, it's, it's a deep problem because we, when we talk about churches, we're talking about a long history where the, the churches that we know now started because of, of segregation and keeping uh, African-Americans out of, out of congregations. Um, and so now that churches are more integrated, but they're still very segregated, how do we talk about race in those spaces? Um, there's a great book by uh, Joseph Bart called uh, Becoming an Anti-Racist Church. Uh, and he's uh, worked with Crossroads Anti-Racism Ministry for many years. And he kind of talks about some, some different ways. Um, my second book is coming out in um, December called Preaching About Racism, A Guide for Faith Leaders. And one of the things I talk about is this idea of racial identity development needs to happen in our churches, too, because as a, as a whole church, we need to kind of understand the depth of this problem. So how do we talk about sin, a word that's been misused and used hurtfully? How can we reclaim sin language to help us unpack the real pain and harm that racism has caused in our society and continues to, to have. So I had some suggestions in there uh, for that. Um, but I think it really happens at the local level. You know, I think it really happens where you are in your space, unpacking the history of your own space, unpacking your own beginnings and saying, where did we start? What was the original kind of impetus for our 
uh, community beginning? Uh, and then how can we continue to do the things that we do best? Uh, and how can we change things to, uh, to make room for the gifts of others? Because if this is really a gift exchange, you know, we really, we really open ourselves to the gifts of others because so often part of the legacy of racism is that we, we only look to certain individuals as being gifted. You know, certain people are the ones that we assume already have these gifts. Um, so how do we open our eyes to see how each of us have been gifted and different communities have been gifted uh, in different ways? So I, I'd be uh, really interested as you all continue in your journey because uh, I know you already are uh, a really inclusive uh, uh, church. So it, I'll be interested to hear how you want to push it forward and, and, and are, are going ahead with that. Other questions? Uh, plenty of questions. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about the idea of guilt. Uh, we're reading uh, your book. We read another article we were talking about it earlier. Um, I know as a white male, I've experienced maybe uh, a sense of defensiveness, but I don't know whether I would associate it with the word guilt. And um, I'm curious, like maybe is that a, is the guilt element more of an experience that people from the South have because of slavery, confederacy? I don't know. Is I don't know. I mean, when you mentioned you're from Texas, I didn't know that before this. But when you mentioned that, I was wondering, is that why that word guilt is part of Because I don't know, as a Californian raised here, I, that's not the word. I, yeah. I don't feel good about the race. <laughs> How should I feel guilt? Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. Um, I think part of it has to do with, with the language we grow up with. So if you grew up with a lot of sin language, as I did in some of the kind of fellowship of Christian athletes kind of organizations that I was, I was part of, uh, you know, they, there were, there was a lot of sin language. And so sin and guilt kind of would go together. You felt guilty for, for your sin. Um, but in those days, what was sinful was considered like drinking or being promiscuous, you know, I mean, like those were the sins, you know, that, that kids could commit, but we didn't talk about, you know, this historic legacy of racism and, and slavery and uh, Jim Crow and all of the other ways um, that we other and marginalized people. Um, but I, I think it's that sense, it may not be guilt, but it's that sense of I've done something wrong or that sense that I bear, uh, I feel guilty for having the white privilege that I have, or, you know, that I can walk into a space and not have people assume that I'm, I'm a threat. Um, sometimes it's those kind of reactions. It's to learning about things that, and that makes us feel like all of a sudden we're bad people or, you know, without intending to, we are kind of crossing over something, um, and so those feelings are very uncomfortable, uh, you know, in, in that they um, they don't reflect the rest of our vision of ourselves. You know, we, we feel like, well, in all of these other ways, I'm I'm a good person. You know, so how could this person feel that I I was being racist in, in what I what I just said? Um, so it's constantly kind of being aware of the feelings that may come up, and each of us have our own different kind of uh, responses depending on our own upbringing and our own part of the country where we grew up. Exactly. You know, people growing up in different parts have very different experiences uh, and different ages. If you came about, uh, came about of age uh, during uh, the integration of schools, you know, a lot of people that I talked to, they're like, I was, 
you know, I, I was part of my high school when it was first integrated. I mean, people telling us about these kinds of, you know, stories and experiences. Um, so all of that impacts our conversation and how we relate to this subject. But um, whatever those responses are, my hope is that we can sit with the discomfort longer than we may want to. Um, and so that we can stay in that conversation and stay engaged. Carolyn, it seems like you use uh, kind of the power of story a lot in order to talk about racism. How do you see, uh, I'd love to hear you talk about the role of story and the power it has to, to uh, help us talk about racism. Yeah, yeah. Stories are so powerful. I'm with my family. I'm listening to Harry Potter for the like, I don't know, fifth time. It's ridiculous. My kids are like all the time, Harry Potter. So we're listening to the audiobook version again. But there's something about story that transports you into another experience. And as you're listening to a story, you're starting to picture yourself, you know, within the character's shoes. You're starting to imagine a different world, a different reality. Uh, and so when we listen to other people's stories, it enables us to experience uh, the world a little differently. Um, uh, is it Maria Lugones who wrote uh, World Traveling? She talked about how different yeah. kinds of world traveling. So she talked about how, you know, sharing stories is a way of, of traveling into different worlds. Um, and that's really stuck with me as a way. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And sharing our own story is important because, our stories constantly change. Uh, we have one kind of story that we may tell about ourselves that at some later point in our lives, we kind of open up and say, oh, well, that's maybe not the story I want to keep telling. This is, this is the way that I want to reframe that story. Uh, and in this conversation, particularly um, for white people, it's really important that we look at this history of racism and we say, even though I don't feel connected to those people who did these terrible things, somehow I am connected and implicated in this larger system. And yet that doesn't have to be the end of my story. I can change. I can grow. I can be part of this larger movement for change. I, I uh, got to speak in Atlanta next to a woman named Zernona Clayton, who was a civil rights uh, activist at, during the time of King. And she said, you know, I didn't march with King, but I organized the marches. You know, so she's, you know, she's uh, another remarkable story about her is that she got to know a grand dragon of the KKK. And they got into this close relationship with each other. And he came to her office one time and, you know, they're, they're having these conversations. And, you know, she says, well, you know, Mr. Craig, I got to get going. I've got a dinner party. And he said, you, you know, you're having people over to your house. Who are you having? And she starts listing off these white people that she's having over. And the guy says, well, you know, Miss Clayton, I could never eat dinner at your house. I'm sorry. And she said, Mr. Clayton, I've never invited you to dinner at my place. <laughs> and, but she goes on to talk about how in having this relationship, he eventually abandons his role and travels the country with her to refute the KKK and to, to talk about uh, different ways of living. So just that story of change showing, so showing that even a person who is closely connected to white nationalism and white supremacy, um, can, can change their life. And all of us who feel that, well, you know, I'm not an activist or I'm not out there able to, to do a lot of real change. 
there's so much change that we can do even in our own little spheres of influence, uh, the ways that we interact with our friends and family and places of work. Uh, so each one of us has the opportunity to change uh, and, and to make a difference where we are. Yeah. Um, could you talk about um, stereotyping um, and how it plays into um, racism when it's where does it depart from observations and and where does it become stereotyping in a in an invalid and not good way? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there's a saying that uh, Emmanuel Larty um, told me that's from some other anthropologists, but he says, each person is like no other, some others, and all others. Uh, and talking about the difference between multiracial or multiculturalism and intercultural pastoral care, um, you know, he talked about how it's important for us to value different cultures and the multicultural movement was really trying to identify that these are distinct cultures and they have these different, you know, characteristics and we need to celebrate them, but that can lead to stereotyping. Everybody from this culture does X, Y, or Z. And then we all assume that we know everything about these people. Well, we know this one person and that person is like no other. So how can we get to know them and their story? And then that person is also like some others. Maybe, you know, they have some similarities with, you know, some other, if it's a woman, you know, so, some other women, uh, maybe with the uh, the social class that he or she comes from, um, with, you know, the sexual orientation that she uh, identifies with. Uh, all these other, you know, some, she identifies with some people. And then at the same time, she also is like all others. We all have these hearts, these lungs that are breathing in this air, we all are human and uh, being able to identify that. So um, in terms of the question of, of stereotyping, I think it's, it's important that we always say, well, I know this about this one person. I know this about these people that I've met before. I'm now seeing someone who looks like them, but they may be totally different. So how can I just relate to them as I would uh, you know, a, a new neighbor and how would I, you know, ask them about their life and anything, you know, what are you doing these days? You know, what, what fills your time and kind of get to know them in a way that I would anybody else. Um, so I think that's, it, it can be, it can be tricky because a lot of people can feel, um, uh, overwhelmed with, well, you know, I, I don't want to stereotype, but it's, it's also easy for us to be able to be in relationship with one another and make mistakes and let people say, you know, that's kind of a stereotype and let them call us out on that and to be okay with that as well. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, can I ask a question? Yeah, okay. Can you see me? No, 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 Hope that doesn't make you busy. <laughs> um, so I want to kind of play off of uh, Brand's question about guilt a little bit, and um, let me do it with you know since the story. I have a, a minister friend who's been a minister of the church in the area for you know probably twenty years. He's uh, it's an inner city church, and he's uh, an older white guy, 
And the church originated, you know how it originated as a white congregation. As time has evolved, the community has changed. So he came to me the other day talking about um, uh, he's getting ready to retire. And so he was saying that the, the, the that what the church needs is a um, a Spanish-speaking minister. Now, so I'd like to get your your your, your impression of that in, in this regard. So, um, what's the difference between prejudice and preference? Okay. Um, uh, because um, it seems to me that um, those are not the same things, um, but it might be a wedge that we could use as whites, as you know, as Anglos, to uh, address um, uh, you know um, racist and prejudice issues. Yeah, um, I think there's a lot hidden in our preferences uh, in terms of our implicit bias um, kind of operating without us really knowing, um, you know, that uh, there's a lot of things that, again, we may assume only people who look just like us have gifts that we need and want. Um, and so opening our eyes to, you know, different expressions of that. Um so I'm going back to that question about the Spanish-speaking uh, minister. What was what was kind of your sense of that? What was where were you going with that? Uh, the church has struggled all the way you know, for years and years and years because as the white uh, as the white congregation get, grows older and gets smaller, um, the church right now is not growing. And so, yeah, I think it's his feeling that if there was a, um, a, a Latino or Latinx um, minister that uh, that was Spanish speaking, that it would uh, it, it would uh, help the church to grow. So I was using that as a wedge to talk about you know the difference between uh, prejudice and preference, because it seems to me that. Someone could prefer prefer something and not be prejudiced. Yeah, like going to different churches depending on who's in leadership. That that kind of line of thinking. I'm trying to trying to track with you. Yeah. So it's pardon me. It seems that the uh, uh, you know even the idea of your comment on stereotyping. So, so let me ask a question a different way. So, are you saying so? Are you saying that stereotyping is always negative? Um, I think it's useful in some ways. I mean, when we talk about stereotypes, it's often we make assumptions like, okay, this is a donut. I am already aware that that donut is probably the same caloric you know, content as the other donut I've had all the other times. And so you're instantly making a stereotype that this donut is going to, you know, be as bad for me as all the other donuts. Um, unless you see a sign to the otherwise and you find out, oh, this donut is actually gluten-free, dairy-free, wheat-free, wonderful, you know. Um, so in some ways it's kind of our biological, um, you know, evolution that we kind of make split judgments uh, based on past knowledge 
uh, is because if we were always processing things brand new, uh, it would would be really, really slow. But when it comes to people, those implicit kind of quick judgments, um, when you've had, you know, a certain amount of people that are, you know, in, in the most powerful positions who hold the most wealth, who have kind of been able to pass that wealth down and continue to be able to give people jobs if those people are constantly going to their preferences, it perpetuates this kind of homogeneity uh, because people are are going towards what they know, what they're used to, what they're familiar with. Um, so, so stereotypes, you know, in a kind of benign sense, can be just ways that we make uh, make meaning quickly uh, in the world. But it's also um, it can be. It can be deadly uh, in the in the real sense that for for persons for whom the stereotype is that their body is a threat, uh, African American young men who are viewed as a threat just because they're out on the street at night and they're black. Um, those kinds of stereotypes lead to those young men being more targeted. Yeah. Uh, so well, what's so what's the criteria? You know. So you know. Um, stereotyping can be good, can be bad. Preferences can be good, can be bad. So what is the criteria uh, for when someone crosses the line? I think the ultimate criteria is relationship. And if you're in relationship with someone and um, you're making assumptions about them and they prefer that you not make those assumptions, then hopefully they will let you know. Um, so it's, it's not something that we're good at deciding on our own because of our own blinders. So it's always, it's always relationship. It's always communication. Um, because what one person, you know, feels fine with you saying around them, another person might, you know, feel really hurt by it. Um, so it, it just depends. Um, uh, but, but in, in, in the church example, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of different things there because there have been churches that are segregated and churches that are predominantly of one ethnicity. Say you know, uh, say in a, a town in like in Austin, if there's a Spanish speaking church um, of of persons who are immigrants from Mexico. Um, For instance, that isn't necessarily just about preference or prejudice, but it's also about solidarity and support in a context in which they're constantly uh, threatened. Uh, And so feeling like you're with people who get what you get all the time, who understand that. Um, So uh, on the one hand, there are there are groups that um, look like, well, they're just sticking with their own or, you know, they're they're not integrating. Um, but it's often because they're already marginalized in society and they need a place to be able to recharge and not constantly feel the hostility that they feel in other places. Um, so for your friend who's, who's looking for a Spanish speaking pastor, I think having a second language or, you know, having Spanish as, as uh, the language of your pastor is always a plus. So, um, whoever, whatever that person looks like, you know, they, they may be Latinx or, 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 you know, they may be German, you know, who knows? Um, but having someone who speaks Spanish, but who can also relate to the needs of the community. So uh, if the community is of a particular ethnicity, then sometimes that does help to be able to let people know, I know a little bit about what you go through. Again, it's, it's the issue of stereotypes. You can't just assume you know everything that someone's going through, but um, there's that hope that we can kind of understand uh, a little bit. Thank you.
And now we're running low on time. Did did anyone else have one more question? That Just, can we go back to that uh, idea of uh, so a leader or a leadership group that is always or often uh, going to their what they prefer uh, that could that could lead to perpetuating prejudice and racism. Without them even knowing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, leadership groups about. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who you know talk about um, the diversity and uh, issues of, of trying to um, you know make sure that your hiring practices are are fair. And some people worry that that's all about like political correctness or you know checking a box. But really, it is to try to overcome those initial um, affinities that we automatically have with people who look like us. And so if you are in a hiring position, um, often you'll go to the people that you feel you can most relate to, uh, you can most connect with. Uh, and so having the awareness that there are people with very different gifts that, than I have, and I may not automatically look to them and see them as just the person that, that we need, but we need to keep looking, we need to keep our eyes open to see what gifts others have to give. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely easy for us to keep, you know, just saying, Oh, well, we, we've hired, you know, white men, the last, you know, 12 hires. Well, that's, that's just because these have been the most qualified can candidates, you know, and maybe, you know, but there also could be a lot of really strong candidates that were overlooked because they, Look different, uh, and and sat, had different sounding names and uh, things like that. So, um, hope that answers your question. Okay. Uh, well, thank. Go yeah, ahead. Uh, I just have one more question uh, that I would love to just like leave uh, people, or maybe people that are listening to this later with. Uh, you know, since your book is anxious to talk about it, we've all kind of like in our first couple of weeks talked about how there is a lot of tension when talking about race and. You know, we're living in a really bizarre time in history where uh, there's just kind of this resurgence of anxiety around uh, racial injustice and, you know, all the things that are kind of going on in media at this point. Uh, what are ways, because I feel like, and you address it in your book a little bit, where people um, can have that stage where they just decide to kind of opt out of the conversation. They're like, you know, I've got my own problems, I've got my own issues, especially, you know, particularly talking about white people at this point. And how have you found, um, in your experience, ways to kind of break through um, that type of uh, person who's in that stage where they just don't want to talk about it and they feel like they have their own problems and, you know, they don't have, they don't live in an area maybe where they have a lot of relationships with people with diversity. So there's not even that type of opportunity a lot of times for them to to kind of put themselves in someone else's shoes mm -hmm. at a personal level. How have you found that struggle in your experience and your work? I'd love to know. Yeah, I, I try to lead with gratitude. Um, and I try to lead with my own gratitude for the relationships that I've built and have, have you know, met through different experiences and to be able to share that with others. So if so, I'm not trying to come into a conversation where, I, I know all the answers and, you know, I, this is, you know, I'm the right person. You're the wrong person. You know, it's, it's always just, I have a, I have this great story of 
of sharing the beauty of a relationship that can happen when we go there, when we get deep with one another, when we are able to connect. Uh, and I want that for other people. And I, I want uh, other people to also feel seen and heard in their experiences. So letting gratitude be kind of that, that rooting mo- metaphor and a motivator for me helps me kind of think about how do I want to talk about this? How do I want to bring it, bring it into the conversation? So um, for instance, at my kids' school um, uh, recently, you know, there was, uh, there was a mom who I talked to who was like, yeah, you know, we, we moved uh, to Austin many years ago. You know, we were originally from Nigeria, and we've been to this school, uh, you know, over a year. But I've just, I felt invisible, you know, saying hi to people, and nobody would even say anything back. Um, so hearing that story, and then I went to the principal, and I was like, you know, it would be really great if we could talk about about race and and talk about how we can be more inclusive and seeing one another and seeing the gifts of one another. So um, in a few weeks, I'll be doing a thing called the gifts of diversity. So focusing on, again, the gifts that we receive from one another and, you know, parents are invited to attend and, you know, parents with kids with special needs, you know, um, a lot of different ways that we can see diversity uh, and played out. Um, But we're hoping to have a good conversation. So any way that you can use your own circle of influence, wherever that may be, um, you know, whether it's at your kid's school or your church or, you know, your place of work or your neighborhood, your HOA or your neighborhood association, all of those places, you can make a little difference. Um, I I was with uh, Metropolitan Community Church of Austin on Sunday afternoon, and I gave them all a task. I said, I want you to use the word racism sometimes this, sometime this week. You know, I, I want you to kind of have a conversation and use that word and then just see what happens. See what is going on in you, feel about your own feelings, and be open to the feelings of the other person. So I might just leave that there as a gift for you all <laughs> to consider. Uh, since I won't be meeting next week with you all, I won't be able to ask you about it, but... Uh, uh, but just something to consider. So it's so good to see all of you, uh, especially so chill. Uh, really wonderful to see you. And um, many blessings to you all as you continue to study and continue in ministry. Thank, Thank you so, you. Thank you so much yeah. for really doing it.